0: Hello, everybody. I am so grateful to be here. This is such a cool thing that we're doing. Um, So first of all, let me introduce myself. My name is Teresa Richard, and I am board certified in swallowing disorders. So I am pretty deeply entrenched in the medical SLP world. Um, I'll also give you my disclosures now. Um, I do have a podcast called the Swallow Your Pride podcast, um, I also have a membership site that provides education, mentorship, and ASHA CEUs called the MedSLP Collective. Um, and then I also own a mobile fees company called Mobile Dysphagia Diagnostics. So um, I do get a salary or I do get paid through those, those three ways. Um, For my non-financial disclosures, I am a part of the American Board of Swallowing and Swallowing Disorders Social Media Committee. Um, Yeah, so I think that's it for my disclosures. Um, Oh my gosh, I want to thank Vanita so much for asking me to be on here. This is such the coolest thing ever. And yeah, so I guess I I want to start out with talking about my story Um, because, you know, I think. life has a funny way of taking you different places and, you know, going in different directions. And I just always thought I was going to, didn't always think I changed my major a few times in college. But once I found speech pathology, I thought for sure I'd work with kids. And I thought I'd work in the schools. And I even did a master's thesis transcribing, doing language transcriptions. And so I I just thought that was the way I was going to go. And I got into my clinical fellowship and I did not like the schools. In fact, I hated it. Um, it may have something to do with the state I was living in at the time had no uh, caseload cap, so I had about a hundred kids on my caseload as a CF. So, as you could tell, I was probably losing my mind. Um, but I had a wonderful CF supervisor, and she also was working in a skilled nursing facility in the evenings and she said i really want you to come with me one of these nights because i think you would really like it and i was like uh no i don't like old people i no doesn't even sound interesting to me <laughs> and she was like no 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 i think you would really really like it and i was like okay so so i went um and i ended up loving it and she did she did a lot of you know swallowing evaluation. She would send her patients for you know modified barium swallow studies. We'd get back the reports, discuss them with the patients. Um I just felt like what she was doing was so impactful and i'm I'm sure you guys, you guys that work in the schools are wonderful. Um, I just did not feel the satisfaction when I was working in the schools with the kids as I did when i got into the skilled nursing facility working with the adults uh, with dysphagia and so that's why i decided once that cf was over that maybe i really wanted to go this medical route and so i at the time i was i was still uh, with my supervisor doing going to the skilled nursing facility after my school days And that facility ended up offering me a job once I finished my CF. So it worked out wonderfully because I did basically have mentorship through my CF, through that skilled nursing facility, um, in order to, you know, be able to kind of somewhat know what I'm doing as much as you do when you're just finishing your CF. (laughs) Um, But anyways, that's, that's my story. And... You know, now that I've been working, oh gosh, how long have I been working in the medical setting? 12 years now. Um, I just love every little bit of what I do. And I know there's so many people, you know, life takes us in so many crazy directions. And, you know, I have so many great friends that work in the schools or they, you know, work in early intervention. And they're like, I think I would really like to, you know, work in the medical field either over the summer or just pick up a few cases on the weekends. And I think that's amazing that our field lets us do that. But the reason I'm here today to talk about this is there's just a lot of things to consider. And it's not something that you just say, let me pick up some hours at the nursing home on the weekend. I remember what I'm doing from grad school class that I took 15 years ago. No, there's a lot more involved. And same way, I I would not want to you know, show up at a at a parent, child's parents' door and expect to do therapy with their child because I know that I am so far outdated and removed from that information. Um, so I'm here to kind of just talk about how if you are interested in, you know, just picking up medical, picking, picking up some hours in the medical setting during the summer or on the weekends, or if you're even looking to make a full-on career switch, kind of how do you go about doing that the right way, the ethical way, a way that makes you feel supported and you feel fulfilled. And what's most important is getting your patients the best outcomes possible. So, you know, just because you are that quote unquote PRN therapist that only comes in on Saturdays, that shouldn't detract from the quality of care that your patients get. You know, you know, if it was your grandfather, your father, your brother, your husband, you know, if it was one of those people, you would still want them to be seen by a good, competent clinician, even if it is on the weekends, even if it is over the summer. Um, And I think a lot of this is just kind of one of my favorite sayings is, you don't know what you don't know till you know you didn't know it. And I think that's so much of the medical side of speech pathology is that this field is just growing so fast, and our scope of practice on the medical side is growing so fast. There's so many new conditions and disorders and treatment exercises, and we know so much more now about what we can do with our patients. Um, so I think that's really what I want to talk about today is is what are some things that you should know about that you may not even know that you should know about. <laughs> so that's what we're going to talk about Today, so first of all, I want to just talk about the ASHA code of ethics, and I know everybody's probably rolling your eyes, like, "Oh, I know, I know, we have to abide by those." Um, and I will say, even if you are, I, I had this argument thrown at me one time that, "Well, I don't have my ASHA Cs, so I don't have to abide by their code of ethics." Um, but I will say, you do have a state license if you do not have your Cs, and most times, the state licensure boards have pretty much the similar or exact same code of ethics guidelines that ASHA has. So um, I'm not going to obviously read you (laughs) the entire thing, but I do just want to talk about how serious this is. Um, Because like I said, there's just been, you know, so many people that just think they'll just pick up hours after work or on the weekends. And it just can be so dangerous to our patients. And I'll talk a little bit more about the dangers of, why you should not be working in the medical setting without the proper training. And I don't say that to scare you at all, but rather just to open your eyes that, oh, wow, I didn't even realize that I could hurt my patient doing something like that. So that's the only reason we're going to touch on it, because I feel like once you know better, you do better. So if you're aware of these things, you can get the proper training so you can be the best darned SLP you can. So. Um, So first of all, let's just talk about the ASHA Code of Ethics really quick. And one of the, the main principles, principle of ethics one, A, is that individuals shall provide all clinical services and scientific activities competently. Principle of ethics two, A, individuals who hold the Certificate of Clinical Competence shall engage in only those aspects of professions that are within the scope of their professional practice, and competence, considering their certification status, education, training, and experience. Principles of Ethics 3A, individuals shall not misrepresent their credentials, competence, education, training, experience, and scholarly contributions. And lastly, Principles of Ethics 4E, Says individuals shall not engage in dishonesty, negligence, fraud, deceit, or misrepresentation. So, not that I, I think that last one's a little extreme and I, you know, <laughs> didn't really want to go down that far, but I think what I just want you all to know is that you may not know you're being negligent in treating a patient or doing something if you're not completely competent in that area. Um, So that's kind of why I wanted to bring those to your attention, because this is a serious matter and you can harm your patients. And that's one of the things, too, that the Code of Ethics says is that you will do no harm to your patients. So, okay, now that we got like the boring, serious, mundane stuff out of the way, let's talk a little bit more about this. So I'm not going to continue to read about this, but I do just want to say quickly, I do have two Swallow Your Pride episodes about this. You can go to SwallowYourPridePodcast.com to listen to it or Swallow Your Pride on iTunes. They're episodes 16 and episodes 88, and they are both about how to get into the medical field the right way, and the other one is um, another wonderful girl that I know that um, she actually did transition to the medical field the right way, so kind of just everything that she learned, and and it did take her a good two years to do that, and I'm not sure that, you know, she's doing, she has an incredible private practice now and is doing some really wonderful things, offering some really great services, so not that it needs to take you two years, but um, just wanted to to have you listen to those episodes, too, if this topic really does, inter- or does interest you. So, first of all, I kind of just want to talk about the settings that you could work in, because I think so many of us get, um, you know, really... <sighs> Every setting has its downfalls. Every job has its downfalls. Every position has its downfalls. And sometimes if you get stuck in one setting, you may think that's the only opportunity for you. And I know plenty of people that have taken a job in one medical setting and just hated it and despised it and didn't really realize what the options, what the other options were. So I want to just talk about those because they are all so drastically different and what you're going to need to know about just basically the knowledge the type of patients you're going to get, and unfortunately, I hate to say it, but the billing. Um, so that's a huge piece, too, is knowing how to bill for your patients, bill for them ethically. Um, that's a huge thing that's going on in our, in our skilled nursing facility world right now. There's a whole new payer status that went into effect on October 1st, a whole new payer system, sorry, that went into effect on October 1st. And it's good because it is getting patients the therapy and the treatment that they need. And it is not tied to the amount of therapy minutes that they get, which is what the old system did, which a lot of big companies were fraudulently billing really large, ridiculous amounts of minutes for patients that couldn't tolerate it. So the change is good, but it's important for you to know that. Let me just go through these uh, different settings a minute. The first one, obviously, which is probably the <laughs> most advanced in the amount of knowledge that you need to know is working in a hospital, more specifically in an ICU. So again, not something that you couldn't ever do. It just requires a lot of training and a lot, a lot, a lot of mentorship. Um, I'll talk about mentorship a little bit and kind of how you can go about getting that, what, what makes good or bad mentorship. But especially in hospitals, they have very strict... Um, guidelines in place, basically. They have very strict policies. And even if you're switching from one hospital system to another hospital system, their policies may be very different. So that is something to be really, really, really aware of. And a lot of hospitals require their SLPs to have different competencies. And let me talk quickly about what a competency is versus a certification. So a competency just means that You have done the training, you've gotten the education, you've had a mentor show you, you've been signed off by someone that is extremely experienced in this area and you are now deemed competent. So something like that would be fees training. So in order to um, become competent in fees, you need to obviously attend education courses, ASHA CU courses, Um, you need to get passes under supervision by a mentor. Um, Some states have different regulations, some do not. But basically, once the mentor believes that you can perform this procedure independently and competently, then you're deemed competent. Um, And that can be the same as, um, you know, placing a speaking valve. Some hospitals have rules and regulations regarding that competency, um, changing a TEP. Um, So yeah, so those are just things to be aware of that the hospital may want you to have competency in or provide the training for the competency for that. So um, that's, like I said, obviously the most um, advanced setting and just the information that you have to know. If you're in the ICU, you'll see patients on ventilators um, that have trachs. So it's so important to know how all that technology works. And most importantly, the impact it has on the anatomy and physiology of your patient. Uh, So we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Um, But next we have kind of the skilled nursing setting. And this is where my heart is. I just love skilled nursing so much. Um, But this can be, there's a very wide range of patients in skilled nursing, there are some that are still pretty stinking sick, um, and sometimes just if they're hospice or if they're palliative care, they don't wish to go back to the hospital for more treatment. So sometimes you will see some really, really sick patients in a sniff. Some sniffs do have vent units, um, and then there are some sniffs that are, you know, borderline assisted living facilities. You know, the patients are up and walking around, walking and talking, and they may just be there for a short-term rehab stay for a broken knee, um, you know, something simple. I say simple, nothing's really simple, but <laughs> um, in, in that context, it can be. So there's a wide variety of, wide range in the skill nursing facility. Um, next, we have the home health setting. And I have so many friends and colleagues, and I, and I love this, that didn't realize how fulfilling and gratifying working in home health can be. I did a short stint in home health Um, A few years back and same thing, I just, I loved it. I just thought it was so fulfilling in that you actually get to see the patient in their home environment, how they're using the techniques and strategies that you're talking about with them um, and carrying them out in their everyday life. So home health can be extremely fulfilling. I will say that on the flip side, it may not be the best setting for you if you're just starting out in the medical setting, because you are completely on your own. So you are going out to a patient's house and you are by yourself and you are in charge of, you know, directing the plan of care. Uh, There's lots of paperwork (laughs) with Home Health, Um, but you are in charge of, of creating everything basically and on your own. You know, sometimes in these hospital, most of the time in the hospital setting, in the skilled nursing setting, you'll have other SLPs around. You'll have a mentor, things like that, which we'll talk about. But um, home health, you're usually pretty, pretty isolated. So uh, that's one thing that I want you to keep in mind that, oh, it may sound awesome that the hours are flexible. I can drive my own car, go see patients in their homes. But um, just know that it. some agencies will provide you with a mentor or another SLP to kind of bounce ideas off of, but it's really not a setting that you just want to start with on day one. So, um, and then lastly, there's, you know, outpatient and private practice setting, which, you know, a lot of hospitals have outpatient centers where, you know, the patients are now living at home, but just coming back for, you know, aphasia therapy or cognitive communication therapy, even dysphagia therapy. Um, So these can be great settings too, because there can usually be other SLPs that work in these settings as well. Um, So just wanted to go through those with you just to kind of open your eyes to what the different settings are that may interest you. And also because depending on which setting, really, if you're more passionate about working in one of those settings, that's going to help to tailor kind of what sort of education, foundational background knowledge you should have, what sort of ASHA CEU courses you should take. So I think that is important to go through. So I hope that wasn't too boring. (laughs) Okay. So now I want to talk about the different conditions in which you would treat if you worked in the medical setting. Um, So I think number one, most people kind of always think of dysphagia and swallowing. And I will definitely talk about that a lot more. Um, And I think it's so important and there's so much information out there about it. And there's so many people that are so passionate about it because it's such an everyday social thing that can just be so detrimental to a patient. Um, but not only that, it is something that you can literally kill your patient if you don't even learn the basics. Um, so we're going to cover a lot of the, I say basics, I hate to use the word basics. Um, but they're only basic in that they're simple concepts and there's been some really like groundbreaking papers that have been written published in recent years, that tell us so much more about our patients than we ever knew before. Um, So I think those are what's really important to talk about, and I want to provide you guys with a little bit of foundation about those papers, why they're so important, why you should know these things uh, to best serve your patients. So we'll get back to dysphagia in just a minute, um, but let's talk about the other conditions that you may treat in the medical setting. So the other is another one is a voice so voice disorders, and this is something, this is kind of an area that you really, really need some more specialized training in, and there, there's. you definitely want to have a foundational understanding of voice disorders, um, but re- what's really so important is that for a lot of these patients, they, if they do have a diagnosed voice disorder, they need to go see an ENT first, before we just start throwing vocal exercises at them. Um, And the reason behind that can be the exercises that you may be recommending, maybe harming the patient even more, maybe making the condition even worse. Um, Sometimes some of these conditions need actual surgical intervention, need a prescription. So they need some sort of medical intervention before we can even get to the therapy part. Um, so I always like to say that first when dealing with voice disorders, because, you know, you may, if you're working in even, you know, just an outpatient setting, uh, someone that just comes in with um, a dysphonia, my voice sounds funny, I'm not sure what's happening, and you just throw some exercises at them without knowing exactly what the etiology is, you could be harming that patient potentially. So um, Voice is an area that's so interesting, and I, I honestly will admit it is not my strong suit um, by any means, but I do, you know, I just want people to understand that they they definitely should seek some medical attention for the patient first before um, just starting with exercises, and usually once, you know, you get the clearance from the ENT to go ahead with voice therapy, then it's all good, but um, one thing I wanted to say about that is, um, Next, we have cognitive communication disorders, which this area is just growing so fast. Um, We now have, we're now treating a lot more patients with um, post concussion syndrome, uh, which which we know is happening more and more often. Um, This is the area where you treat patients with, you know, traumatic brain injuries that may be trying to get all the way back to work. And this area also does cover our patients with dementia. There is a lot of, uh, misunderstandings, miscommunication out there about whether we do treat dementia since it is a progressive disease. And yes, we can help patients with dementia. We're not going to cure them, obviously, um, but there's we do have a huge role in providing compensatory strategies um, to help them with both with their communication, also their swallowing, which I'll get to later, and and also facilitating, helping the family to facilitate better communication with them. Um, So yes, we absolutely do treat dementia. It's within our scope of practice. Uh, There is a page in the ASHA practice portal all about it, so I'm not just, you know, pulling this out of nowhere. (laughs) Um, Another area that we treat is dysarthria, and this is a really interesting part of our field because, Um, There's really so much you have to know neurologically before you can diagnose and treat the correct form of dysarthria. So there's actually a a bunch of different forms of dysarthria. So it's really, this is an area that it's really important to know um, your anatomy, your physiology, your neurology. You want to know if it's affecting the upper motor neurons, the lower motor neurons, because that's going to depict which type of dysarthria you're dealing with, which in turn will depict the types of exercises and treatment strategies that you use. And honestly, one of the best um, places to look for all this information is on the ASHA practice portal. They have a phenomenal page about how to treat patients with dysarthria and the different, the different types of dysarthria that you may come across. Also, aphasia. And you know, I, I think aphasia is very common in in what a lot of people think that we do. Oh, we help people learn to talk again after they have a stroke. Um, and yes, <laughs> that, that is definitely what we do. Um, there's both expressive type aphasia where patients have trouble just getting the words out. There's also receptive aphasia where they just may not completely understand the thought or the concept. Um, and one of the big things with aphasia is we now have so much more research about how to treat these patients functionally. So what used to be a big thing, and some some SLPs are still doing it, is just basically using these really basic, boring, mundane workbooks to try to stimulate their patient. And I don't want to throw out workbooks completely, but I kind of mostly do. <laughs> um, some may have a spot, a minor, minor, minor spot in our therapy world, but for the most part, we should throw away the workbooks. Um, there is definitely, there is so much more that we can do functionally to help these patients get back to where they were. You know, whether it's they want to be able to pick up the phone, tell their daughter "I love you" on the phone. You know, there's so many more ways that we can help these patients. Whether it's you know reading a recipe to make their favorite um, dessert, something like that. So uh, that's one thing that I want to express. In and if you're looking to help patients with aphasia to really dive into some courses, some ASHA CEU courses, or just some really good resources about functional evidence-based therapy and not just picking up, you know, that dusty old workbook that's been sitting in the speech office for the last 30 years and, and thumbing through that. So <laughs> that's my little rant on aphasia. Um, and before we get back to dysphasia again, I want to talk about, you know, the possibility of working in the NICU or um, a pediatric medical setting. Obviously, this requires just such a specialized set of knowledge, um, but again, it is one thing that you just could not show up and do the job for without knowing so much more about this population. Um, NICU is such a special population, and they usually do have some very rigorous mentoring guidelines uh, before they'll throw you in there. <laughs> Thank goodness. Um but what's most important about NICU is, is our role there is to really help to, um, I believe they call it neuroprotective care, um, to really help to shape how the child is going to eat in the long run. Um, and the way that you do that is with cue-based feeding um, and not shoving a bottle down the baby's throat. <laughs> um, there's some, you know, some, some theories, some old NICUs that, are very volume-based driven, which means that as soon as the baby finishes all the milk, they are good to go home. Um, And sometimes that can lead to some very, very, very harmful habits that can basically harm the baby for learning how to feed in the long run. Uh, so that's very important to learn, is that if you are gonna get into the, into the NICU, taking some courses about Q-based feeding, neuroprotective care, um, there's some wonderful organizations for SLPs, for NICU therapists uh, that you may wanna be a part of. Um, and then kind of conversely, is getting into a pediatric medical setting, A lot of these, a lot of these kiddos do have long-term pediatric feeding issues. Um, And that is just, that's a whole nother aspect of our world that still needs so much more attention. Um, And there are great courses out there if you are interested in in pediatric feeding as well. So um, yeah, so those are the different settings. And all right, so let's kind of talk about what the heck should you know (laughs) if you want to work in a medical setting. And first and foremost, this is what I will shout from the rooftops. That you need to know is the anatomy and physiology, the cranial nerves, and the neurologic pathways. And I say this because sometimes we come across some reports or we come across some patients and it just doesn't stink and make sense why they were given this list of exercises to do or why they were, you know, even some some doctors will advise some patients to do some pretty crazy funny things. And if you understand the underlying anatomy and physiology of how the swallowing mechanism works, um, you'll be so much better off. Um, Going even further, the cranial nerves, knowing how to do a good, thorough cranial nerve exam is just worth its weight in gold and can often, often, often tell you exactly what's going on with your patient. Um, a lot of times these can lead to further referrals. A lot of times we are the frontline person that notices these cranial nerve deficits. And then we make the referral to a neurologist or a doctor who says, oh, yeah, crud, they definitely did have a brainstem stroke. So um, the amount of stories I could tell you of SLPs being the first person to determine this, um, its there's a lot. And then really just as boring as it may sound, as much as you really maybe don't want to go back to quote unquote school, um, knowing the neurology is going to help set you up for success so, so much. Um, There's a lot to know for sure, um, but it's so very important. And there's even, you know, there's some professors or some researchers out there that I've spoken to that says sometimes just knowing the underlying neurology and knowing how that neurology is impacted by different conditions can basically just set the treatment plan for your patient and can just help you with your differential diagnosis of that patient. So it's definitely not something to be overlooked at all. And, you know, how do you get that knowledge? Um, There's a few different ways. I mean, even just a good old trusty dysphagia textbook and I will throw the caveat out that I would prefer if you read a dysphagia textbook that was written rather recently. Um, there are some that are that have been written. They're oldies but goodies, but from about 20, 30 years ago, and we just know so much more since then. Not that they have bad information, but we know so much more since then. Um, so even just, you know, asking your local university um, just for some good good. Uh, textbooks on dysphagia, swallowing disorders that were written in the last few years. Most of them, usually the first few chapters are all about the anatomy, physiology, cranial nerves, neurology. Um, You also, what I I do know some people have done is actually attended the, um, you know, anatomy and physiology course or a dysphagia course at their local university. Um, I know, like I said, you may not want to go back to school. Uh, but I do, know, I do know quite a handful of people that have done that, and they're so grateful that they did do that um, because they never would have, you know, forced themselves to learn that information otherwise. So um, I can't really shout from the rooftops enough how important it is to understand basic anatomy and physiology, cranial nerves, um, and the neurology of the swallow for working with these patients. Um, I also will say, going even further, it is also very important to know even beyond that how the respiratory system works, how the cardiac system works. A lot of these things can be impacted by the swallow, and some some people just don't know that. Um, we, we didn't go to med school, <laughs> um, and I don't know that you need to go to med school, but I do think, you know, you need to understand the different body systems and how Your recommendations, the exercises, the thickened liquids, the diet modifications that you're making can all impact different body systems. So you may be helping to cure the fact that the patient may not be aspirating anymore, but you can be causing harm to another body system. You can be dehydrating them or there's there's a myriad of different things that could happen, but I encourage you to learn a little bit more about their impact with other body systems other than just looking at the little voice box. <laughs> All right, so let's kind of talk about some big, big topics that you should know about if you're going to work in medical SLP land. Um, there's theres two papers, actually, uh, the Predictors of Pneumonia that were written by Dr. Susan Langmore, um, and these papers are, are just incredible in our field, uh, landmark papers, really, and, you know, it, it's It's a controversial topic in our field. Is aspiration bad? Uh, That depends. Um, Do we want our patients aspirating every single bite or sip that they take? That depends. Um, We do have some research from Dr. Susan Butler that aspiration is completely normal in a healthy adult. So you or I could be walking down the street drinking some water and we're aspirating it and it's no big deal. It's not causing any harm to our body. However, we have our patients that are very acutely ill, some in the ICU, and an incidence or two of aspiration for them can mean a very serious repercussion. So it's it's so important to know how aspiration can affect your body and how the body actually does develop pneumonia. And if your patient has those predictors for pneumonia, um, so I would encourage you to look up, there's two papers written by Dr. Susan Langmore, and on one of them, dysphagia is the seventh predictor of pneumonia. So there are six other factors ahead of dysphagia that would increase the patient's risk of getting pneumonia. Um, so that's those are some really important things that a lot of people don't know about uh, that I would really, really encourage you to dive into and get a really good, solid understanding of how that happens um, there's another paper that was written by Dr. John Ashford. Um, it's a presentation that he did called The Three Pillars of Pneumonia. And this is just such a phenomenal way of thinking about how our patients develop pneumonia, whether aspiration is this big, bad, horrible wolf. Um, <laughs> and basically, there's you know three, three ways that a patient can develop pneumonia. They have to be aspirating food or liquid. Uh, they have to have poor oral care, and they have to have a weakened immune system. So for someone that is aspirating food or liquid, but is otherwise completely healthy, completely healthy immune system, wonderful oral care, uh, they probably have the smallest, smallest, smallest chance of actually developing pneumonia. Now you have someone that is in the hospital or one of our long-term care patients, and they're aspirating everything. They have horrible oral care. No one's brushed their teeth in weeks, and they have such a weakened immune system. They're bedridden. Um, That patient is much, much, much higher risk of getting pneumonia. So I encourage you to look up that presentation as well. Um, Just a really, really eye-opening way of looking at your patients. Um, So the next thing that that kind of leads me to is instrumental assessments. And This is my soapbox. Again, my my disclosure is I do own a mobile fees company. Um, There's two ways of getting instrumental assessments done on our patients. There's fees, which is a flexible fiber optic endoscopic evaluation of swallowing. Little teeny tiny camera goes up the nose and we're able to see the swallow from a top down view. The other way that I'm sure you've all heard about is, is a modified barium swallow study or some people call it a video fluoroscopic swallow study. And this is done in the x-ray suite with a radiologist where the food or liquid is coated with barium. And this gives us a side view. And both fees and MBS can show us wonderful things. Each test has its limitations as well in what it can show us. What I like to tell people is the best assessment you can get is the one that you can get, Um, depending on what setting you're working in, You may not have access to fees. You may not have access to video fluoroscopy. You may have access to the other one. Uh, You may have access to the other one tomorrow, whereas the other one may be six months away. Um, So I encourage everyone to get the test that you can get. Um, Since I do this full-time, I can tell you with 100% certainty that I am never surprised. I'm never surprised. And I say that because... I'm always surprised in what I see. Some patients we think may have a horrible swallow and they've been NPO, they've had a feeding tube, they've been bedridden for years. You get down there and their swallow is beautiful. Conversely, you have somebody that is walking and talking, eating totally fine, just has a little scratchy cough. You get down there and their swallowing is a disaster. (laughs) So I say that you, you never know until you look. And the only time, I am such a huge advocate for instrumental assessments because I've just seen so many patients that were treated not the way that they should have been had they had an instrumental assessment. Um, But I will say the only time that they are not necessary is if it's not going to change your plan. So if the family doesn't give two hoots about your recommendations anyways. They're going to let mom or dad eat or drink whatever the heck they want. It's never going to change the recommendations. They don't care. Then we're not going to put the patient through the assessment. Um, so that's really the only time I would say not to get one is if it's just not going to change the plan of care. So that's kind of my rant on instrumentals that they are so, so, so important. And ASHA do, does, it does say in our, in our ASHA code of ethics that we should be treating dysphagia with an instrumental assessment. If it's necessary, Um, you really, truly, there's so many things that people do with, you know, just feeling the larynx from the outside or listening with a stethoscope. And they are so horribly unreliable to begin with, but not only that, they do not actually tell us what the pathophysiological deficits of the swallow are. So even if, you may may not feel laryngeal excursion from the outside, or you may be hearing some clinks and clunks from cervical auscultation. It doesn't tell us what the actual deficits of the swallow are, which we need to know those deficits in order to treat them appropriately. So I would just encourage that whatever setting you work in, you have a really good understanding of the benefits of both fees or video fluoroscopy and that you have access to them. Because I really, truly do not feel that you can do your job without them. I know that's a bold statement. It's my statement. <laughs> um, but just knowing what I know from doing instrumentals so much, that they really are detrimental or they're, they're so necessary for our patients. The next thing I want to touch on is the pros and cons of thickened liquids and modified diets. And I know in a lot of settings, I know a lot of inexperienced SLPs that will just say, oh, you coughed, now you get nectar thick liquids. And there's probably a thousand reasons why someone might cough, which is why you want to have an instrumental assessment done. Um, but not only that, is for some patients, thickened liquids can be harmful to them. I've seen some patients that depending on their, their anatomy, their laryngeal anatomy, their, their pharyngeal anatomy, depending on the way that that looks, depending on the timing of their swallow, Whether it's dry, um, whether they have any esophageal conditions, sometimes the thickened liquids can make it much worse. Um, So I I want to put that out there. Thickened liquids absolutely 100% have a place in our field. And for some patients, it is a matter of them drinking a liquid versus being completely NPO, but is also not something that you just willy-nilly think oh, they're coughing or choking, let's put them on thickened liquids, it'll solve all their problems, because it does not. There needs to be a reason for those thickened liquids or that modified diet. Again, some patients, um, putting them on a puree diet may be more harmful than if they were to just eat solid foods. Uh, So these are all things to just be aware of. If you're you know, walking into a skilled nursing facility for your first shift this weekend, Uh, don't just put everybody on thick and liquid. So make sure that you have an instrumental assessment to understand the reasoning why that may happen. Like I said, these are just kind of some things that I really, some really soapbox issues for me, but not only that, they're really issues that if you understand the foundation behind them, it really helps to guide your treatment better, helps for you to become a stronger clinician, helps for you to advocate better for your patients, and ultimately have a better relationship for your patient where you'll get better outcomes with them. I'm not going to get into actual dysphagia treatment exercises today, but um, we actually, uh, kind of the, the way of thinking about it is compensatory versus rehabilitative. So almost for the longest time, we were just compensating for our patient's dysphagia. So you're coughing, you get thickened liquids, Tuck your chin down, and now you'll be fine. Um, But we actually don't do that. That's not always true. Um, A chin tuck is not always the answer either. For some patients, it can actually throw the food or liquid into the airway. Oh, but what what I was saying was that the difference between compensatory strategies and rehabilitative. We now have so many more exercises that we can do that actually can improve the swallow. Um, So instead of just banishing your patient to a lifetime of thickened liquids or even a feeding tube, we do have so many more evidence-based exercises and treatment strategies that we can actually essentially fix a patient's swallow now. Um, So I really want to challenge you to learn about those, learn about all the exercise, evidence-based exercises that we have for dysphagia. Learn them, do them with your patients. Don't just rely on these compensatory strategies um, and send your patient on their way. Of course, the compensatory strategies do have a place, um, but if you can actually help get your patient off of doing those strategies, then you should do that. So that's kind of my soapbox about all these dysphagia issues. Um, I do want to say there's definitely some wonderful resources out there to help you. There's some there's some you know free resources. There's some blogs and some podcasts that are out there. I will say I'm I'm so very big on on the credibility and the evidence base behind some of these blogs and podcasts that are out there. And they should be able to support what they're saying with references. Um, I've seen some that have no references, they're just personal opinion. And there's some that are full of references, whereas you know that this really is good evidence-based information. So that would be my top tip for you if you are seeking out you know, just, just free information on the internet in the form of blogs and podcasts. Um, CEU courses. You will have to take a lot of ASH CEU courses in order to get up to speed in this area. And some people don't like that. <laughs> and and I, I, I have a hard time with that because I think you need to get the knowledge to treat your patients as best as you can, and they deserve that. Um, you may have to come out of your pocket and spend a bit of money to get these courses to get up to speed. Um, but I think it's 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 very important. It's It's what's best for our patients to do that. The last thing I want to touch on is mentorship. So in some facilities, they absolutely will not hire you without saying, you know, we have a mentorship program. You have to use our mentor, blah, 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 which is wonderful. Some facilities do not have a mentor for you, and you may have to seek one out. And it's, it might be difficult for you to find a mentor in that facility or find a job opening that has a mentor for you. But I would absolutely tell you not to take a job in a medical placement if it's your first position without one. There's ways to get creative. You know, Obviously you wanna ask if they have other SLPs that can help mentor you, if they have a formal mentorship program, um, but even just reaching out to some people that, um, in your area that may be able to direct you to someone. Um, I I really, really encourage people to find a good mentor in this area because, like I said, you just don't know what you don't know until you know you didn't know it. Um, And, and, you know, this is an area that you just don't want to harm your patients because you just didn't know something and which is, you know, what a mentor would help bring your attention to. So I always encourage people to reach out, um, ask if anybody knows anybody in the area that may be able to help mentor them. Don't be afraid to ask. Uh, that's, that's the number one thing I want to say. So um, I hope this has been very helpful for you. Um, if you have any questions, I'm happy to answer them. <laughs> and I, I hope some of you guys will consider coming over to the medical field. We, we need your help desperately. We have such a shortage. And um, yeah, I hope if I can be, of, be helpful in any way, I am, I'm happy to. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on SwallowYourPridePodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.
1: Thank you for participating in SLP Live. Remember that listening to this pod course does not automatically guarantee ASHA CEUs, If you want to earn up to 0.8 ASHA CEUs for this conference, there is just a small $25 administration fee to process and submit your paperwork. You can pay this administration fee and find more details at slp-live.com. Once your purchase is made, an email will be sent to you containing the course evaluation, feedback survey, and CE paperwork. Please submit these materials by November 9th, 2019 at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. SLP Live would like to thank its sponsors for offering products, services, and or discounts as giveaways to attendees at no charge. You can see a list of these sponsors on the SLP Live website. SLP Live would also like to thank the presenter of this course, who has provided her speaking services at no charge. Can't get enough CEUs? Medridge Continuing Education has offered to give away a premium membership, yes, a premium membership. You can enter to win by taking a screenshot of this course and sharing it on social media. Use the hashtag SLPLive2019 so we can find you and you don't miss out. The winner will be announced by November 11th, 2019 at midnight Eastern Standard Time. Thank you so much for listening and we hope you enjoyed this very first annual PodCon. Hello. All right, Teresa. Hello, (laughs) Vanita. How are you? This is the coolest thing ever. (laughs) I'm so glad the captions worked, but I loved hearing your tips and tricks. You like did an amazing job.
0: Oh, thank you. Obviously, I'm super passionate about it. (laughs) (laughs) And it's cool
1: to get the like medical SLP perspective, you know, thrown into the mix as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much for inviting me. Yeah. So we had, uh,
1: we had a question. We have like a comment and a question. Uh, Chris said that you did a great job. It was a great presentation. Thank you, Krista. (laughs) He also (laughs) asked your thoughts on vitalist or vital STEM. Vital STEM. Okay.
0: Um, so I do have a disclosure in that I am an affiliate for amp care, which is a similar product to vital STEM. I will say I do know people that I personally do not use Vital Stim, but I do know people that have that do use it, and they really do find good outcomes with their patients. The important thing to remember is it's just a tool; it's just a modality. So you have to have the perfect type of patient to use this modality on. Where we get lost is some people will just set it and forget it. We call it um, just strap electrodes on somebody crank up the current and wonder why, if it's helping the swallow, Um, that's not what it's used for. There's very specific parameters for a very specific patient. So do I believe it can help that specific patient population? Absolutely. It just has to be used in the, in the right way. So
1: yeah, great way to put that. I didn't see any other questions. We'll kind of hang around to see if any other ones come in. Uh, Did you mention like any Facebook groups during your presentation? I don't think I heard any. So would you mind sharing any that?
0: I don't think I did. Um, I I do run the med SLP newbies group. Um, So if anybody's interested, I just post a lot of, you know, just kind of facts, research facts. Um, A lot of people just kind of ask really simple questions, but what I do love about that group is we have a lot of like high level mentors in there too, that just love mentoring people that are kind of new to the med SLP side as well. So Um, If you're interested, yeah, we'd love to have you.
1: Great. Yeah, that'll be really helpful, I'm sure. And then another question that I had was, um, can you get like your maybe like top one to three CU courses or trainings, if you can remember them on the top of your head that you would refer people to start, you know, start
0: at? So I would say number one, hands down, which is a very difficult course to get into, but they're actually expanding rapidly and making a lot more courses is MDTP. It's the McNeil Dysphagia Therapy Program. And I think the reason I love that is because it can be used in any setting. So it can be used in acute care, skilled nursing, home health, outpatient. And I think just the way that it's presented, it helps you understand everything from like a neuro perspective all the way down to um, really just patient's wishes. Um, Because that's kind of a lot of what we deal with is, you know, we we see what we think is best for the patient. We make the recommendation. The patient doesn't want to change their lifestyle. It affects their quality of life. And so there's so many factors pulling at this. And I think that course is just really good at working with where we're at um, and using what we have to improve the patient's swallow. So that's a great course. Um, I, like I said, AMP Care is another um, electrical stimulation course. What I love about that course though, and what I talked about in the podcast episode is the like entire beginning four, six, four four to six hours of that course is like the most extensive anatomy and physiology and cranial nerve review. Um, and the way that they present it is just very easy to understand. So I recommend people take that course just to get a really good cranial nerve review. Um, and then what's another one that's really good? Oh, crud. I don't know, Benita, you put me on the spot. Those are the two that I, (laughs) I I mean, I'm a big fan of MedBridge too. I know every, I know you guys are, are, MedBridge is helping out with this too, but I just love MedBridge because they're so good about getting really high quality speakers on there. And that's something I'm really passionate about with blogs and podcasts and CUs is making sure they're good quality evidence-based material and MedBridge really nails it. So I don't think you can go wrong with any of the courses on there as far as medical SLP is concerned.
1: Awesome. I think that that's very helpful. And they have so many different options on there as well. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? we have like a couple minutes, anything else that you like wanted to touch on or share about maybe something that you do or any of your other courses or your episodes? Oh gosh. Um,
0: I don't know trying to think what else I can tell you guys. You have a lot of episodes on your podcast, right? We just did (laughs) 115. I just finished today. Wow. Um, Yeah. So I'm really excited. So swallowyourpridepodcast.com is the website to go to. We just figured out this new feature because I get so many messages from people all the time about like, do you have an episode about this? So now we actually built out this search feature where you can just type in the search, like trach invent, and it'll pull up all the episodes that cover that. I know. I'm so pumped. We've been talking about that separately. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's going to totally save my sanity, my sister's sanity, everybody's sanity. So, um so so that's what I'm really excited about too because I know there's, you know, like a few different topics where we dive into that on certain episodes and and it's just not listed in the title. So, um and I will say all of the episodes also come with show notes. Um, so, cause people always email me like, what was that reference that someone mentioned? They're always in the show notes. So download the show notes first before you email me and ask me which reference that was. So, <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, that's great. So do you, will there be show notes for this as well? Yes. Yep. Oh, awesome. Perfect. Yes. And this will be up tomorrow, like starting tomorrow. Um, okay. i Well, sorry, we probably should have talked about that. But (laughs) yes, tomorrow is is October 30th. And so um, Asha had required us to hold off on posting on our podcast until tomorrow. So tomorrow should be the day you guys have access to any audio recording if you wanna listen to this again. Perfect.
0: All right. I thought there was another question that just came in.
1: There was, oh good. Oh, you're right, there was. I'll read it to you. Hey, Teresa, thanks so much. This was so great. In terms of mentorship, would the mentor have to be at the facility itself?
0: So, you know, that's a great question um, because I believe the short answer would be no. Um, It's nice to have, and I believe actually the ASHA requirement is that they do have to come, I'm talking about your CF, I'm sorry. You're probably just asking like a mentor in general. Do I think a mentor in general needs to be at your facility? Absolutely not. However, the caveat is if you are brand, brand, brand new to medical SLP or to like an acute care hospital, you absolutely should have somebody on site just to help with, you know, I think like, like I said, like, um, you know, speaking valves and things like that, showing you kind of that stuff. But um, if you have someone in the hospital that can help you with that kind of training, um, any type of mentor in the field, you know, I know I mentor girls across the country. I say girls because I I literally just have women right now, (laughs) but, but yeah, you absolutely don't need somebody in your facility just to, I've got a whole bunch of different people that I'll just bounce ideas off of, or what am I seeing with this patient, or what do you guys think we're seeing, or who's the proper doctor to refer this to. So um, don't think you need someone to be in your facility unless you're brand, brand new and need to learn the actual basics and the foundation. Great stuff. Yeah.
1: All right. I don't see any other questions. So we can go ahead and uh, wrap up. Thank you so much for doing oh, this. this
0: was awesome. Thank you so much for doing it. It was so fun.
1: <laughs> and um, have a wonderful night. And thank you guys. We'll see you tomorrow for the last day. All right. Thanks, Anita. Bye. Bye.